Welcome to The Paradigm Concept, hosted by myself, Dr. David Rollis, CEO of Paradigm Oral Health. The Paradigm Concept will feature leaders and innovators in the healthcare industry, in particular dentistry, to help you find new, efficient, and innovative ways to build a world-class practice and deliver better patient care. At Paradigm Oral Health, we're all about shaping the future of our specialty, with a focus on putting the needs of the patient first. Learn more and subscribe today at ParadigmOralHealth.com. Hi, this is David Rollis, CEO of Paradigm Oral Health. Today, I'm joined by Ed Zuckerberg, who is a dentist, a pioneer in dental technology, social media expert, venture capitalist, and chief dental officer of two biotech firms that are focused on oral health. Certainly very, very busy. I thought I was busy, but after hearing all Ed has going on, I think I'm a bit lazy. Oh, and 10 grandkids and some <laughs> bridge, and I got the makings of a pretty jam schedule. Sounds like it. I've been fortunate to get to know Ed over the past five years. He's even done some speaking for us in our practice. I've learned a lot from our conversations, you know, truly a brilliant guy. So Ed, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure to be here, David. The purpose of this podcast has been to learn from you know, individuals that have had great success in dentistry and in business and try to translate some of those experiences into our business, which is mostly focused on surgical specialties in dentistry. But I'd love to kind of ask you some questions about you know, your background, how you've gotten to where you are, how you see dentistry today, where our focus should be, and probably most importantly, how you think about the future. So if that sounds like a reasonable plan, I've got a list of questions and thoughts for you. Go for it. Well, first off, I know you've had an eclectic background, been focused on a lot of different areas. I'd love to just you know hear a little bit about your background and you know how you went into dentistry and how you are where you are today. You know, self-discovery is a journey, and mine was growing up in Brooklyn. If you had any sort of brain, your parents wanted you to be a professional in those days, lawyer, or a doctor, you know that kind of thing. So I had my share of subliminal pressure, and I think. While maybe I may have been better suited to a career in computer programming, that wasn't really an option back when I was growing up. Those were the kids who couldn't get into professional school went into that. So there I was, found myself in a class of 200 at NYU Dental School starting in 1975. And I really can't honestly say I knew anything about dentistry. I mean, an aptitude test told me, you know, hey, you're good with your hands, you like working with people, you're good with science and mathematics and spatials. Dentistry came up as a career for me. And my say, I heard some of the upperclassmen talking about a bridge, and I didn't know if they were talking about the Verrazano Bridge or the Brooklyn. The knowledge of dentistry from my one restoration that I've had in my mouth in my entire life was pretty minimal. Turned out, I found out that almost half of the 200 in my class had parents who were dentists, so they kind of were channeled into mom and dad's practice. You're going to step in, take over, that kind of thing. And, and a lot of people were really not happy about being there. I loved dentistry. I really loved it. I loved dental school. I loved the education. I loved my career. Then it took me a while to realize that I had this technology visionary gift. I think I kind of backed into it. One of my colleagues who's really into video games in dental school convinced me to go beyond the Atari 2600, the joystick game, which was available at the time, and told me I had to buy an Atari 800 computer. It would you know, have better graphics. And he said, and also, if you want to learn basic programming, it's pretty cool. 
I bought one of those, and I remember back in 1981 doing some beta testing, basically, I call it, with Citibank. They were giving their clients that had an Atari 800 or a Commodore 64 computer a very slow dial-up modem to do some early version of online banking back 32 years ago. My very first session was with three payers, like the phone company, water company, electric company, that had pre-registered with Citibank. And I remember my first session where I paid it. It made quite an impression on me. I remember looking for my wife who was home studying. She was in medical school at the time and being very excited and explaining to her what had just happened, that I had just paid three bills without writing a check or anything like that. And looking rather unimpressed, she asked me how long it took. And, you know, I said, well, it took about an hour to set everything up and do all that. And she's like, you know, I could write three checks and have them in the mail in five minutes. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't get it. This is going to change the way things are done in the world. And she was like, no, you're right. I don't get it. Knock yourself out. You know, go for it. And she was always there behind me, like when I dragged her into the IBM product center in like 85, 86 and spent $10,000 for a first IBM PCXT that couldn't hold one picture from one of today's digital cameras and a dental software package that was horrendous, but only by playing with it and finding its shortcomings was I able then two years later to look at a few new entrants in the market and then start to work with a guy who was a dentist who really didn't want to practice dentistry, who turned into a career in computers and built a dental practice management system that I worked with for over 30 years, helping him refine the product and work with it. I guess maybe the real catharsis for me came in 98, 99, when I was one of the first dentists to see the value and put digital x-ray into practice, you know, I was always a photographer and I had some experience earlier that year with the first Sony Mavica digital camera. My family took a trip to Israel back in 98, 99 for my middle daughter's bat mitzvah. And I traveled not with film, but with a box of floppy disks, because this first Sony Mavica iteration took three and a half inch floppy disks. It held about 14 images on a floppy disk. And I had maybe four boxes of 10 floppy disks each that I had my images on. And it was when this was available for dental x I just saw so much value in the ability to have immediate diagnostic information and information that I could use to really educate patients on what's going on in their mouth. You know, up until that time, we did have some tools like intraoral cameras. I actually was a pioneer with the AccuCam first intraoral camera in the late 80s. And ironically, I'm working with the developer of that system from the late 80s now in my role as a venture partner, Revere Partners. He's developing now an ultrasonic periodontal probe to deliver three-dimensional representation of periodontal defects in a painless fashion. But with digital x-ray, you know, one of my frustrations was I knew what my patients needed, but getting them to really accept the care that I was recommending, even though I was compassionate 
and had good people skills and ability to educate, I'm still resorting to this little tiny periapical image to explain periapical pathology, for example, to a patient who I'm trying to convince who has no pain and why they need endodontic therapy. Sometimes they get it, they hear what you're saying, but dentistry notoriously falls low on the list. Patients seem to have a million excuses not to accept our treatment plans when they really don't see it. You know, we get kind of get behind car payments, vacation payments, sometimes basic stuff like putting food on the table or rent. And then there's the pain factor, too, you know, that people perceive dentistry as being uncomfortable. And all these reasons give them plenty of reasons to say no to our recommendation for care. But I thought, and this was borne out, that having 21-inch monitors mounted on the chair, which I did back in 99, and having an image instantly blown up the full size of the screen, and now they see this black where it shouldn't be black, this hole, this radiolucency, and it looks like a cancer. And all of a sudden, they want that fix yesterday. And you jump right to the top of the list of priorities And yet, when I spoke to my colleagues at like study clubs or social get-togethers or whatnot, and I would tell them, and I'm being very exuberant about my new toy, so to speak, how much did you spend for that? And I'm like, well, it was $15,000. And they're like, how are you going to recover the cost? Are you going to charge more for your x-rays? Nah. Are you going to take more x-rays? No. And they're scratching their head. And I realized that my vision of increased case acceptance, which by the way, in that first year I calculated, I sold about 100,000 more in cases with that tool that I would not have otherwise. And other intangibles like, what do you do with the patient during the 15 minute downtime that you just took regular film images on and you're waiting for the assistant to run them through the PeriPro to do your consultation? You know, you sit there schmoozing with the patient, talking about their vacation or their sick dog or whatnot. It's all great for developing doctor-patient bond, but it's not very efficient use of your time. Multiply Mm -hmm. by four a day, and you're losing out on an hour of production. And I saw those things, but my colleagues didn't. And what I realized was I had to think like my colleagues. So, like, how much do you spend a year in film? They didn't even know. We had to then actually talk about, well, how many FMXs a day do you do? How many bite wings and whatnot? And after extrapolating, we figured out they're spending about four to 5,000 a year in film. And now they go, oh, so in film savings alone, this $15,000 digital system will pay for itself in three years. And then all that other stuff is gravy. If you learn to understand the way dentists view or more accurately don't understand return on investment, then it's helped me tremendously in my second career where I talk about technology placement in practice and how it makes sense financially. I bet as a visionary in technology and dentistry, you probably don't take that sort of view of it, like, hmm, how much could I save on x-rays or what's going to happen to my case acceptance? You probably just recognize this is a tremendous opportunity to improve patient care and there will be all kinds of amazing side effects 
rather than looking at it as a, oh, let me see how I save money on x-rays. Process that stuff instantly when I look at technology. So in my role as a venture partner for Revere Partners, over the last three years, I must have done diligence on over 100 dental startups. And I can usually form an opinion within about 10, 15 minutes of the companies pitching their product and concept to me on whether this will fit any number of criteria to make it something that we want to get behind. What are things that you think will make a product viral or valuable? What are the kind of key things you look at or or what do you try to stay away from? Well, obviously, we tend to avoid things with big material hardware costs. So, you know, I had a company with a great idea for a, a kiosk in the dental office waiting room that could be used both as a patient education tool, a way to communicate patients to log on to Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatnot and post about their experience in the office right from the office, marketing new products to them, educating them about procedures. It was a great product that I would love to have, but it was $8,000 hard material costs. And the amount of funds the company would need to get that off the ground and to start getting adequate penetration and significant number of offices around the country didn't lead up to success. I mean, another company we looked at is a company that's in the marketplace now, but is really struggling to get share, a company called Neosis. They have the Yomi robot for placing dental implants. It was amazing technology. I got to travel to Miami about five, six years ago when they had about 20 users countrywide and actually experienced the technology firsthand, feel the robot arm, not be able to, you know, would lock in buccal lingually. So I didn't have to worry about perforating the buccal lingual bone when preparing the site for an implant. It would hit a dead stop at a pre-calibrated depth. So in the case of a mandibular implant, I didn't have to worry about pushing the handpiece too far and doing damage to the inferior alveolar canal. So it made a lot of sense. And yet the venture capital firm that I was working with at the time relied on me to do product diligence, which I gave a favorable review on. But when it comes to crunching valuations and stuff like that, that's not my strength. I don't have the financial background to look at projections and numbers and stuff like that. And ultimately, I spoke to several of my good friends, like names you might know, Edmund Bedrosian, Justin Moody, people like that, seeing a lot of implants at the time. And they told me that basically they wouldn't use a product like that because they, these are the guys who are at the top of the game and felt that the surgical placement of the implant was so automatic for them that there wasn't that much of a curve that they could afford. It would slow them down and they couldn't justify the cost of the machine. Whereas when I spoke to a couple of the users of those early 20 users that had it, they were relatively new, you know, new dentists. They hadn't placed the volume of implants that some of these other guys had done. And they saw value in both helping a practitioner who's newer 
deliver a safer surgical procedure, but also they saw value in marketing this. They saw value to the patients who would trust a robotic placement, perhaps if it's marketed properly, more than they would trust the potential errors of a human. You know, and I had experienced that with a friend of mine who went through prostate cancer surgery, and he had the option of going through the robotic prostate cancer surgery, and he showed me the plexus of the nerves involved that had to be negotiated during prostate surgery, and that the biggest risk for a failure postoperatively was not that cancer was being adequately removed. It was more the danger that the patient would be left impotent if some nerves were damaged in the procedure. And he was convinced that a robot could more precisely, knowing the location of the nerves, more safely perform the surgical procedure. Properly marketed, it can be a great tool. And the type of dentist that looks at a device like the Yomi robot are very different. Ultimately, I think there were valuation problems for the Mm -hmm. company who was doing investing. And even though I gave them green light, they wound up not investing because the valuation the company was looking at was too high. You know, when it comes to ROI, you have to look both from the dentist's point of view in what is this product going to do for me? First of all, is it going to help me do something I already do faster and more efficiently, which will help me make more money? If not, is it maybe a procedure that I could never do before without this device? So that's a win. Or maybe it doesn't make me money, but maybe it really significantly improves the quality of care for my patients. And that even though the ROI may not be in dollars and cents, the ROI might be an improved doctor-patient relationship, improved the way the patient feels confident. I remember when I used that digital x-ray on one of my first patients, her expressing some concerns. First, she loved the technology. She loves the image pop up right away. And then came the question, hey, is this going to cost more than the x-rays I used to? (laughs) No, it's not. And I said, in fact, I'm turning down, because of this sensor is so sensitive, I'm turning down the amount of radiation I have to use to expose the image by almost two-thirds. You're getting two-thirds less radiation. And the patient literally just jumped up, hugged me, and said, This just reinforces why I chose you as my dentist 15 years ago and why, as long as you're in practice, I'll never go to another dentist again. Uh Even if that technology didn't make me a dime, it was worth it from a practice management point of view. I love to think about when you're introducing technology and you know, just first, does it improve the patient outcome, the patient experience, and can it be commercial? Can we decrease the cost of care to patients? I had, in my early days, there were two oral surgeons that worked together in a practice that I referred to. And at some point they had a practice divorce and they each went their own way. I think it involved technology so that one went more high tech and the other very low tech. And both were surgeons that I would have my own family members be treated by. And it would kind of be like an eeny, meeny, miny, mo when a patient needed like a third molar or whatnot. Yeah. They went to And one particular patient had 17 and 32 taken out, I mean, 16 and 17 taken out by one of these surgeons. 
and a couple of years later needed the two-third molars on the other side. And I reached in, I saw who had done the first one and gave her his card and said, call Dr. So-and-so again and have it done. And she goes, is there someone else you might recommend? And I go, oh, did it not go well? And she said, it went perfectly. Treatment was very smooth. Child pain and healing was great. But you know, when my child sat in the chair, he pumped the chair up in the air with his foot, you know, like a barber type chair. He had this like belt-driven, slow-speed handpiece. Oh, jeez. And when I left, and this was like 2013, when I left the practice at the end of the visit, the assistant typed my invoice on a typewriter. Oh, wow. This is 10 years ago. And she said, you know, we come out of your office, which is space-age technology, and then this particular office kind of didn't match your technology. So from that day on, I kind of started throwing many more referrals to the other former partner who was more in sync with the way I practiced when it came to technology. And it reminded me that technology doesn't necessarily make us better dentists, but it creates the perception among our patients that we're better dentists because we use current technology. That's a good point. Something I hadn't maybe thought about a whole lot. As an oral surgeon or specialist, we're kind of a representation of the restorative doctor that we get to work with. So it certainly can impact their reputation a bit. So kind of a great responsibility to uphold that. You've obviously raised some pretty tremendously successful children. And I know your practice was very kind of closely linked to your home. How did you kind of manage work life and did all of the things that you were doing in your office with technology and things sort of shape your children's outlook on business and technology and healthcare and all these things? You know, my first practice was in Brooklyn, where I grew up. Six months after buying my first office, my wife got into medical school up in Westchester County, just north of New York City. And we relocated to White Plains after I had been in practice for about a year. And I was commuting from White Plains down to Brooklyn, which was pretty brutal. A lot of people have commutes. It was doable. An hour plus each way, I kind of figured out to leave a little later and stay a little later to avoid rush hour. But we really liked the suburban life after both growing up in the hustle and bustle of the New York City metro environment. And so we looked for a house. And I specifically looked for a house with a retiring dentist with a practice in the office. I had been impressed by the home office Back when I had knee surgery, when I was 21, I remember going to my orthopedic surgeon's home for a post-op visit. This looks like a really convenient lifestyle move for him. I mean, it was just a suture removal thing. I remember he saw us at like six o'clock at night. He came out. There was no one there when we got there. We walked (laughs) into the office and he came out with a napkin tucked into his shirt (laughs) and some tomato sauce coming out of the corner of his mouth. And he said, I'm just finishing dinner. I'll be right out. And it obviously made an impression on me. You know, for about 10 years, I practiced part-time, like three days a week in the house practice and three days a week driving down to Brooklyn, adding associates as the Brooklyn practice built up to prevent me having to spend more time down there. And then I had to make a decision ultimately about 1990 about what I wanted to do career-wise. I could have been like a multi-office 
traveling from location to location and kind of build like a dental empire, which was kind of new at that time. Most dentists were solo, had partnerships and stuff like that. Maybe 65, 70% of dentists were in that situation. Whereas today that number is down 30% or lower. And I just made the decision that quality of life was important. My wife had made a similar decision after she finished her psychiatry training, deciding to, after having two children while she was in medical school, she decided to stay home and help raise them. And we had two more. So she took 10 years off after her training before going back to her career. And I sold my office in Brooklyn in 1990 to focus full-time on the house-based practice. We expanded it. It was modern. It was large. Eventually, I had my wife basically left her psychiatry practice and practice psychiatry on my staff and patients (laughs) and my kids and me, I guess. And we found great use for her skills, although probably not what she intended when she went to medical school. We would finish work at five o'clock and make a point of having family dinners and then sometimes out to dinner ourselves after sitting with the kids and spending time with them and never did require much sleep. So I would often go back down to the office at 10, 11 at night and spend two, three hours finishing up paperwork, dictation, insurance forms, whatever I needed to do, reviewing charts for the next day, lab work, et cetera. I exposed my kids to what I was doing. They all, at some point in time, helped me pour Alginate impressions. And, <laughs> you know, see the kind of work I did, you know, building vacuum form trays for bleaching or whatever I was doing at the time. None of them took up the family business. <laughs> what happened was my kids were the benefactors of my technology propensity. And what happened was we were very early engagers of things like electronic insurance claim submission in the early 1990s, credit card processing, everything in those days used dial-up connections. And one of my assistants noted, hey, you know, it'd be hard to transmit a credit card payment or get an insurance eligibility verification after about 3.30. What do you think's going on? And it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that my kids were coming home from school. (laughs) And my two oldest kids, Mark and Randy, had their own computers and they'd go on, at that time it was America Online, using the dial-up and cutting into our bandwidth. (laughs) I thought about it and decided, hey, you know, I've got computers, I've got eight computers in the house at this point in time. I got one in each operatory, two others in business offices, and three upstairs, one in my bedroom, one in Mark's room, one in Randy's room, we should network all these together, as well as put a printer scanner on the network and whatnot. So a friend of mine had a fledgling internet business that he was building. I had him come and retro wire the house. I think back then it was Cat 4 wire cable, and we brought a T1 line in. So here is, at this point, Mark was like 11 or 12, And he had, whereas most families had like one computer in the house and shared AOL dial-up access, he had his own computer with 24-7 broadband. (laughs) Wow. And he had the ability to learn how computers talk to each other. So one of the nights at dinner, we all went around talking about our day, what was good, what was not so good or whatnot. 
And I mentioned that I was really excited about this Comlight system. I'd had a guy, a representative came in and we were going to build like this communication system, silent communication system, where we'd have these strips of different colored lights in each treatment room. And I could get like messages silently, like, you know, green light, Dr. Z, your next patient is in the waiting room. Or red light might mean your next patient is getting antsy. You know, they've been in the room 10 minutes. And the hygienist would have her light to send me a light that her patient is done and ready for an exam. And my son hears this and he goes, you already have computers in all your treatment rooms and in your front desk. Why do you have to do that? Doesn't that involve them drilling wires and running, you know, wiring all the rooms? And I said, yeah. And he goes, I could build you a program that will do all that using your existing computers. You don't need that. And he went to work on it that night and had it ready like in two days. And we called it ZuckNet. (laughs) And we had, all of a sudden, I'm getting like pop-up messages on my computer screen from my pianist. Patient's ready, and oh, by the way, she's already been informed that number 30 with a big amount of should have a crown. Front desk, you know, who not only there's a call on the line or you're, Mr. Jones is here and he's very antsy because his kid's sick at home and he wants to get home after his appointment, you know, stuff like that. You know, certainly that, gave Mark a head start and created kind of the perfect storm for him to have an edge on his peers. So he certainly benefited from it. And my other kids likewise benefited from having easy access to the technology we had in the house. Wow, that's a great story. So fast forward and as all that is obviously advanced into the advent of social media and everything else, when I know when you've come and spoken for us, you've talked about that in dentistry. How do you see the role of social media today in communicating with and kind of activating your patient base to be a opponent for your practice? You know, I guess kind of serendipitously for me, when my first grandchild was born in 2011, which was kind of the precipitous move that got us to move from New York to California, we already had three of our four kids living in California at the time. Mark, who started Facebook, Randy, my oldest daughter, who actually did graduate Harvard. And she had been working for a couple of years for Ogilvy and Mather, big New York advertising firm, and Forbes. He got her to come out and run marketing for Facebook for like six years. And then my youngest daughter, Ariel, who's now in venture capital, but at the time graduated Claremont McKenna with a minor in comp sci and got a job with a startup in Palo Alto. So we had three of our four kids in California, but here we are still toiling away in New York in the home office. Around that time, I think it was maybe 2010, I got a call from Howard Ferran, dental icon and starter of the first social media for dentists for collaborating on the internet about cases and products and whatnot even before there was a Facebook, back when MySpace days. And Howard was trying to become friends with every dentist on Facebook. And Facebook had capped him out at 5,000. (laughs) Found out that Mark's dad was a dentist and he called me up and said, Ed, you gotta help me with this. (laughs) And I'm like, well, Howard, it sounds like you set up what should be a business page as a personal page. But if you set it up as a business page, you can have unlimited friends. And he said, well, how do I do that? And I said, well, we can convert your personal 
Facebook page to a business page, all the people who are currently friends will become followers or fans of your page. So that's the important part. But you will lose all the data. So if there's any like photos and posts and content there that you want, you better figure out how to download that. But we converted over to a business page. He was thrilled, went on his merry way to becoming friends with Dennis all over the world. And he said, you need to write an article for Dentaltown for the journal. Does my practice need a Facebook page? And back in 2010, that was a question. Dentists were just having websites. So I wrote an article about it. It was very well received. They asked me to write something else. What are you passionate about? And I said, well, I'm a really good dentist, but I'm not one to teach dentists dentistry. I can write about technology, something I know about evaluating technology and implementing technology in the practice and running a successful front end of a dental practice. Yeah. So I wrote that article. And after that, the floodgates started to open with emails soliciting me to talk. And so I launched my speaking career, speaking at dental meetings, conferences, and study clubs and whatnot around the same time that we moved out to California. So 10 years ago in 2013, we fully sold our home and dental office to one of my previous associates, moved right into career number two. I started getting solicited with companies wanting to me to advise them, helping them take their ideas and get them to market. You know, and there's a lot that goes on in between there, including a point where they've got to raise funds, which was real new territory for me which being out here in Silicon Valley, I uh, made a lot of connections and got involved in that space. But it was still a big reluctance in venture capital companies to invest in medical and dental startups. And at one of the dental meetings, I had met Jeremy Krell, who was half my age. He's been out of dental school maybe 10 years. And Jeremy was doing a lot of what I was doing, advising startups. He was the chief dental officer for Quip, one of the first home uh, toothbrush, electronic toothbrush companies that was involved with a subscription program to ship everything from heads to floss and things like that on a subscription basis, kind of like Harry's with the razors. Razor away, sell the blades kind of thing. Yeah. And Jeremy, at some point, I had a colleague that he was friendly with who'd been involved with Bridgewater, the largest hedge fund in the world, been with them for like 13 years. And they came up with the idea of starting a venture capital fund that invests only in oral healthcare companies. Shortly after the start of the pandemic, I joined them as a venture partner. So basically what I was already doing, but now... I'm aligned with over 50 of the top dental industry KOLs. We had the ability to brainstorm together, look at ideas together, sit in two or three of us with similar expertise. In the beginning, I got high-tech stuff like mm -hmm. robotics and dentistry and things like that. But as my focus shifted to where it is now, to oral systemic health, now I'm seeing a lot of companies that are in the periodontal disease space or sleep apnea, things like that. And I'm also acting now as the chief dental officer for Keystone Bio, 
a biopharm, biotech company that has a monoclonal antibody that we expect we'll be able to irrigate subgingivally and completely eradicate P. gingivalis from the oral crevice. P. gingivalis has been implicated in everything from dementia, Alzheimer's, heart disease, diabetes, digestive cancers, arthritis, non-alcoholic liver disease, you name it, the list goes on and on, and it's just going to keep growing and growing. And most dentists, like me, when I first met with the team at Keystone Bio in 2021, have heard of P. gingivalis, know it's a bad bug, know it's one of the evil five, so to speak. One of the salivary diagnostic companies, Direct Diagnostics, has a test called the HR5, the high-risk five, which identifies the five periodontal pathogens that they think are most responsible for periodontal disease. And PG is certainly the leading one in those. Back about 13 years ago, two periodontists, George Haji Shingalis and Rich Darvo, one from UPenn, one from U Washington, reported on the Keystone Pathogen Hypothesis which is pretty commonly accepted now that P. gingivalis is the keystone pathogen. And while others play a role, most of the role the others play is in feeding DNA to P. gingivalis in the periodontal biofilm subgingivally, leading to the virulent stage that PG goes into. So while PG can be present in a healthy mouth, usually PG is indicative of potential serious systemic disease. And while researchers have looked for PG elsewhere in the body, they haven't found it. What we do know now, and we have found, and this has been demonstrated clinically, is that it's not PG itself, but the toxic proteins of PG are delivered through the vasculature of the body that exit the gum tissues. The way PG creates the environment for its own survival in the gum tissues is through these outer membrane vesicles that the organism releases that carry these toxic proteins called gingipanes. And those gingipanes are responsible for inflammation in the gum tissue, creating an environment, an acidic environment that is ideal for PG, PG is also anaerobic. So obviously the subgingival tissues provide an outstanding environment for it to survive. But what we've shown is the blood-brain barrier, which is an effective barrier to most microorganisms of preventing mm-hmm. serious disease, except for we have shown meningococcus with the ability to cross the blood-brain barrier, which is why meningitis can kill you within a couple of days after. Mm -hmm. What we have shown is while bacteria like PG can't cross the blood-brain barrier, and they wouldn't want to go to the brain where the highest oxygen level in the body is, the toxic proteins, the gingipanes, do cross the blood-brain barrier, do interfere with neuronal transmission in the brain. Wow, that's interesting. For dementia. And the macrophage response that the body engages in the brain to try and overwhelm these toxic proteins results in beta amyloid plaque buildup in the brain. So the therapies that currently are available to treat Alzheimer's patients 
are geared at breaking up beta amyloid plaque, but that's really late stage disease. We need to attack it at the gum level before the bacteria PG gets to spew these toxic proteins into the bloodstream and cause that problem. In literally 100% of autopsied Alzheimer's brains, we find the toxic proteins of DNA in those brains, the toxic proteins of PG nivalis in those brains. Wow, that's amazing. In the liver, we've shown that the toxic proteins, the gingipanes, inhibit glycogen synthesis. So while the pancreas is directing an appropriate amount of insulin be produced to break down sugar into the metabolites that we need for cellular function and energy, when that glycogen synthesis process is impaired, the right amount of insulin is no longer doing its job. And so we produce more and more insulin. And that's why there's a deep interconnection between periodontal disease and diabetes. It's been shown that when you treat periodontal disease aggressively in diabetic patients, patients who physicians had trouble calibrating their insulin dosage can now easily be managed and often controlled with diet. Same thing with the vasculature. We've known forever that gum disease and heart disease are intertwined, but we really couldn't put our finger on the pathway. Now we can. The toxic proteins, the ginger pains that are traveling in the vessels of the body cause an increase in permeability and a weakness in the blood vessel walls. And the body repairs those weaknesses with calcifications. Those calcifications lead to narrowing of the lumen of the vessels, leading to high blood pressure, atherosclerosis, heart attacks, and strokes directly attributable to the ginger pains of P. gingivalis. It's kind of unfortunate that we even have to use the term oral systemic link. I mean, it's kind of like saying cardiosystemic. Of course, there's a relationship there. It's just, it's interesting how dentistry is sort of viewed as, or the oral cavity is viewed as something separate from the body. But I think that's amazing work that you're doing. How do you think about is big data and data science and artificial intelligence playing a role in developing these models to understand oral systemic links or other areas in dentistry? You see that as opportunities? Well, without a doubt, several of the companies I'm advising now are big users of AI. For example, Viome now has, they've been a gut health company for years, and they've used AI to evaluate mRNA activity. mRNA activity is literally measured in that, I don't know what goes beyond trillion, gazillion, or whatnot, the number, the amount of data coming in is ridiculous. But Viome has figured out how to use AI to interpret the data coming in from the samples they collect from people. They're collecting blood, stool, and saliva. And now they have a salivary-only professional-level test that can actually screen for oral cancer oral and oral pharyngeal squamous cell carcinoma before the dentist even sees a white spot or red spot or a lump. So we can use this as a screening tool to find oral cancer earlier than ever before, which means that our oral surgeons are going to be getting referrals from dentists now that this test is out there. Hey, I've got a patient screening positive from Viome for oral or oral pharyngeal cancer. I don't see anything going on in their mouth. I'm sending them your way. You know, maybe they've got to be 
scoped because it's oral yeah. fruit. And the tests would have a 95% specificity and a 90% sensitivity for oral and oral pharyngeal cell carcinoma. And they're using AI to filter data and biomarkers that are out there to do it. Another company I'm working with is a company called Proteocyte, which deals with that gray area that I'm sure you deal with quite a lot in your practice, David, where the general dentist sends a patient over for a biopsy. And obviously, there's a protocol you follow as a malignancy. But what do you do when there's not a malignancy, but it's not totally normal? You know, there's some amount of hyperplasia or dysplasia or whatnot. And you run the risk of undertreatment and telling the patient that you're not out of the woods. It's not cancer now. A lot of them will hear it's not cancer. And now they're out of there. Even though your message is, you know, we need to follow up and see you again in six mm-hmm. weeks a year for a rebiopsy, that message often doesn't get hurt. So undertreatment could mean to loss of life. And on the other hand, overtreatment could be, you know, disfiguring. It could affect quality of life. It can be for many people as bad as undertreatment. So we don't want to do either, but we don't really have, we're flying mostly by the seat of our pants. You know, we can read the histology report, read the pathologist report, you know, and say to the patient, hey, there's some dysbiotic cells here, even though you got this big white lesion and it's not cancer, we should cut this off. What proteocyte is doing is they've identified a protein biomarker as well as building a database by following longitudinally long-term studies on which of these lesions became cancer, which didn't. There's this protein S700A that is found in cancer, in cancer cells. So if we find the protein, that certainly puts that patient in a higher risk category. And this is a test that is now available in the United States, only became available very recently. It's called the Stratocyte test that you can order. They use the existing histologic sample from the biopsy. You don't have to have the patient back for another biopsy. You use the same sample, gets sent to the lab right now. I believe they're partnering only with MD Anderson in Texas, but the sample can be shipped to them. And what the dentist will get back what the surgeon gets back is a five-year predictor on the likelihood of that lesion based on a percent becoming malignant over the next five years. So now armed with like, hey, this lesion has 40% likelihood, well, that becomes a no-brainer. You're going to go ahead and strongly recommend to that patient to have surgery now, even though you're not doing a neck dissection, you know, you're not cutting off their mandible, but you're certainly, you know, you might be taking a chunk of their tongue or floor of their mouth or cheek that you might not have done before. And then on the other hand, if there was a lesion, you might have been leaning to biopsy or to do a more aggressive surgery, and they come back with a 1% risk of that lesion becoming malignant in the next five years. That's one that you can now comfortably say, hey, we don't need to do anything now. What was the company and the biomarker? The name of the company is Proteocyte. The test that Proteocyte does is called the Stratocyte test. It's on their website, by the way, Proteocyte.com. Let me see if I can pull up the actual biomarker itself. 
S100A7. Some other statistics they throw in, you know, that oral cancer is now the sixth most common malignant cancer, you know, most malignancy type in the world. Almost half a million new cases each year globally. And we used to think, who's our high-risk group? You know, when we were saying at Viome, who are we targeting? We used to say, well, people over 50, known heavy tobacco and alcohol users, whatnot. But with the advent of HPV as a leading etiologic factor, causative factor of oral cancer, especially pharyngeal cancer, now we throw into the mix anyone who's sexually active. So basically every patient who walks through our door is a candidate that we should be screening for oral cancer. And up till now, we're relying on our eyes and our fingers and some aids like Velscope and things like that. Now we actually have a non-invasive salivary test from Viome called Oral Health Pro with Cancer Detect available now to dentists. That is awesome. Well, I appreciate so much of your time. And, you know, it seems like you've predicted many enormous advances in technology in our profession, probably decades before they occurred. So as a last question, just curious to know, where are you going to spend your time? What do you think for the coming decades in dentistry? Where should we be focused? Well, I was at Harvard last weekend presenting it with three different companies at the Global Symposium on AI and Dentistry. The dean of Harvard, William Ginobili, and I met about a year ago and both share a common passion in bringing dentistry and medicine together. Dentistry somehow has gotten fragmented over the years, pushed apart. I think dental insurance played a long role in that. I think dental insurance should not exist. Dental disease, oral disease, has implications on whole body health. And as such, there should be one kind of medical insurance for everyone. Dentistry should be covered under medical insurance. And I think that through these tests and awareness, I mean, you can't pick up a magazine or a newspaper anymore without reading about poor oral health leading to poor mental health or dementia or heart disease or whatnot. There's an increased public awareness of it. The public is ready for this. And I guess if I had my crystal ball to look into 10 years in the future, what I expect I would see is that someone shows up for a medical workup for a problem, be it fluttering heartbeat, be it blood sugar issues, be it issues of memory loss, whatever they be, whoever triages that patient is going to tell the patient before we do a deeper look into this, The first step is you need to see our oral health professional. Make sure that your health of your teeth and gums is in optimal state because the root of many of the systemic diseases going on in the body is in the mouth. And we need to start with a healthy mouth before we focus anywhere else. And the role of dentists promoted as primary healthcare practitioners who are just a piece of the medical team focusing on the mouth is, you know, going to elevate the standing of dentistry to basically a specialty of medicine. Mm -hmm. I certainly hope that's the case. It would make all the sense in the world. 
you know, having advocates like you are going to be a big part of making that happen. So I really appreciate your time today. And I know our audience will learn a lot from you. And let's try to do this again in the future. It was a pleasure chatting with you today, David. Well, thank you, Dr. Zuckerberg. We'll talk again. Take care. You've been listening to The Paradigm Concept, brought to you by Paradigm Oral Health, an organization led and owned by surgeons passionate about shaping the future of our specialty and ensuring the needs of the patient come first. Learn more and subscribe to the show at ParadigmHealth.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on The Paradigm Concept. Mm -hmm.